Some, uh, some months ago, uh, my son and I uh, went into the forest uh, near his home uh, to check out and to try and spot any deer. We walked through the bush to a natural waterhole. When we got there, we looked around for deer prints in the soft ground. Hey, you can tell how old a deer print is by the sharpness of the edges of the print or how much water's in the print. We also looked around for deer droppings. I won't tell you how you work out how old they are. That's for some other time. Finally, uh, we also looked around for uh, uh, scrapings in the trees. It's something the male deer does with his antlers. And you can often see those marks in the trees. Well, we found one or two good signs that looked promising. Based on what we saw, we decided to get up early next time I was visiting and go and see if we could spot any deer. Well, that visit was a couple of weeks ago when Joe and I went up to to visit them. Dean and I kept on saying, yep, we're getting up at 5am 5am and go and scout out the area. But you know what? I'm pretty sure you know what. (laughs) Neither of one of us got up and we never went to see if there are any deer. Well, maybe next time. Uh, John's Gospel is a bit like a deer hunt. Um, There's careful and sometimes cryptic clues laid out for us to follow. In the previous verses to our reading this morning, John has set the scene with John the Baptist and Jesus' early followers. Now he gives us our first sign. And he tells us so. The second comes two chapters later. And from then, from then on, we are on our own, leaving it up to us to finish the hunt. Just prior to our reading, Jesus has called Philip and Nathanael to follow him. So this first sign is what Jesus promised Nathanael when he said to him, you will see heaven open and God's angels going up and down upon the Son of Man. We shouldn't look at this event and other signs as pleasant but imaginary legends, stories that John might have you know, exaggerated to illustrate some purpose or deeper spiritual truth. These signs are moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other. That is the whole purpose of them. The point of them is to draw our attention away from the fact that they couldn't happen in real life and point the way to a heavenly reality. One of John's favourite mottos, that is, the word became flesh, that a heavenly heavenly life came to earth. That is also why John includes these signs. He wants us to realise who Jesus really is and where he came from. Our reading this morning is all about transformation. If you were to continue reading through John's Gospel, you would see this pattern repeated. The different dimensions of reality that comes into being when Jesus is present. 
Another interesting point in, the, in this reading is that it is the only time Mary is mentioned in John's Gospel other than in chapter 19 at the crucifixion. But why is that important? Well, because of Jesus' strange remarks to Mary in verse 4. That remark is, my time has not yet come. You see, because it points us to a time when his time, when his time does come, a time on the cross. For John... This is the ultimate moment when heaven and earth meet. This is, one of those phrase, this is one of those phrases that pops up regularly in John's Gospel. I guess it's similar to the idea of the day of the Lord. In John 12, 23, we discover that Jesus' hour is the hour of his glorification. It's as though when Mary asks him to do something about the wine... Jesus' answer is more to do with Old Testament prophecy about the Messianic age as being a time when wine would flow liberally. Listen to some of them. Here's a couple. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Joel 3.18 And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Amos 9.13-14 This time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who ploughs shall overtake the one who reaps and the treaders of grapes the one who sows seeds. The mountains shall drip with sweet wines and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. So for Jesus to do this miracle is in a sense an announcement of the coming of the new messianic age. There is also some significance uh, in the fact that the responsibility for providing the wine belongs to the bridegroom. When Mary asks Jesus to do, to do what Jesus, sorry, what Mary is asking Jesus to do is to perform the task, which is very significant in the terms of who Jesus is. You see, if you turned over a couple of pages in your Bible to John three twenty seven to thirty. There we find John the Baptist reminding his disciples what he told them about Jesus. What's the description he gives of Jesus? He's the bridegroom. Of course, um, that idea is developed further in the pages of the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, where the church is described as the bride of Christ. At the end of Revelations, we read um, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. So again, this act of Jesus providing wine for a wedding feast points towards the messianic age to come. The events of the wedding are signposts, clues that all point to that moment. 
the wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly feast in store for God's people. But there's other clues that we can suss out. The water jars would have been used as part of the Jewish purification rites. This is seen as a sign that God is doing some new thing from within the Jewish system, bringing purification to the world in a new way. I was talking to uh, an Indian friend of mine who were comparing weddings. I was saying that at my children's, at my oldest son's wedding, we had about 110 people. Joe and I thought, 110 people. I was talking to him about his wedding and he wasn't too sure how many people were there. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, there will be about three to 500 people at the wedding. He goes, you've got to understand, in India, everybody's invited. The whole village. If you just happen to be visiting the village, whether you've met them or not, as soon as you walk in the village, if there's a wedding on, you're invited. Hundreds of people, hundreds of people that go to the weddings. Well, in Jesus' time, things were the same. Everybody in that village at the time would be invited. And those they knew from surrounding villages would come also. Running out of wine was not just a social disaster, but a disgrace. The family would have had to have lived with the shame and the bride and groom may well think that their marriage is being cursed. Whilst we see Jesus here being aware of the bigger issues, we also see his compassion where people are in need. We see him deal with it in often unexpected ways. The transformation of water to wine is, of course, meant by John to signify the effect that Jesus can have and can still have today on people's lives. He came, as John says later in chapter 10, that we might have life in all its fullness. Well, I've got a couple of challenges for you for this week. Something for you to think about. The first is a bit like my hunting. You know, it is great to look at the signs and to see them and to know what they mean. But if you never get up and do anything about it, the whole exercise is pointless. So what are the signs? What are the signs in your life that you want to keep ignoring that God is doing or trying to get across to you. The other challenge is to pray through this story, the story in John's Gospel, with your own failures and disappointments in mind, remembering the transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously Do whatever he tells you. And then, and then expect to be dealt with in a new and unexpected way. Amen.